Good morning. Today's scripture comes from 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 21. Beloved, let us love one another, because love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love God does not know God, or does not love, does not know God, for God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, since God loved us so much, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God lives in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and do testify that the Father has sent his Son as the Savior of the world. God abides in those who confess that Jesus is the Son of God, and they abide in God. So we have known and believe that love, believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and those who abide in love abide in God, and God abides in them. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness on the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not reached perfection in love. We love because he first loved us. Those who say, I love God, and hate their brothers or sisters are liars. For those who do not love a brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. The commandment we have from him is this. Those who love God must love their brothers and sisters also. The word of God for the people of God. Thank you, Bonnie. Last Sunday, some will remember, I began a six-part sermon series on major Methodist doctrines and beliefs. Methodist and then later from 1968 for Word United Methodist. And we talked last week about the authority of scripture. Next week we'll talk about justification by faith. And for this week we're going to talk about God's love for all persons. Some of our doctrines and traditions we hold in common with other faiths and other Christian traditions But some are unique to who we are as Christians in the Wesleyan tradition. And I'm grateful for that, for the peculiarities, for the distinctive differences that make us who we are. And I'm all grateful for that and grateful that I've grown up in this tradition that many of you have as well. And if it's new to you, then I hope you'll you'll see why we are excited and why we feel strongly about the way we have been led for all these years. God's love for all persons, the affirmation that God loves all people, all persons, even when they are undeserving of that love, is at the heart and is at the very core of who we are as God's people, God's Methodist people in this world. God not only loves every person, but God is actively reaching out and loving and wanting to forgive us for turning away from him. He is constantly inviting us into a right and renewed relationship with God. Day after day after day, this activity of 
love and forgiveness extended to every person we call the grace of God. And it's acted to some degree in every person at every stage of his or her life. God's grace is active, as John Wesley wrote, even before the first wish to please God, even before the first dawn of light concerning God's will, in the first transient conviction of having sinned against him before all of that, God's love and God's grace, God's mercy is at work in our lives. We talk about that as prevenient grace. God calling us into a relationship with God before we're even aware of it. God pursuing us because of God's great love for us and not wanting to leave any of us behind. God's grace is constantly inviting us into a right relationship with God. But, of course, we always have the right to receive that love or to reject it, to turn our back. But God's not going to give up on us. God's love for all persons. I want us to think for a while now about what are some of the implications when we say that, United Methodist Christians that we are in 2020. What are some of the implications? We cannot exhaust that list of implications, not in the short time that we have together this morning. But we'll take a look at what I believe to be some of the more significant implications that are involved when we declare that God loves everyone. One implication of our belief in God's love for all persons is in that classic struggle of predestination versus universal redemption. And by that I mean the offer of God's love is universally made to everyone. It's been a a tug of war of sorts. It's been a conflict at times throughout Christian history. Are we predestined for redemption or is it offered to everyone? This Calvinistic doctrine that Christ had died for the elect only was something that John Wesley and others had begun to push back on. Calvinism, so named after John Calvin, was always strong on logic that said only the elect were to be saved. The death of Christ and the redemption he brought was for them and for them only. For who else got it? Brushing brushing this kind of counsel, this kind of thinking away, Wesley and other early Methodists called these words, words that darken counsel. And Methodists took up the slogan of universal redemption that God's love is offered to everyone. We can accept that love or we can say not now, Lord, or we can walk away. But it became a war cry of sort with the early Methodists. Universal redemption is for everyone, not just for the elect. And that's so important. It's not that big of an issue anymore. It doesn't seem to be. Even traditions that were at one time based on that predestination, not so much anymore, it seems to me, though they still get teased about it sometimes. And while we're talking about it, uh, not sure if I've told you this story about a guy who believed so strongly in predestination. Walking along one day, started down a flight of stairs, stumbled and fell all the way to the bottom of the stairs. Got up, brushed himself off and said, thank you, Lord, that that's over with. It's not that way. It's not like every aspect of our life has been laid out for us. But Charles Wesley taught us in a hymn, Oh, for a trumpet voice on all the world to call, 
to bid their hearts rejoice in him who died for all, all in caps and underline, for all my Lord was crucified, for all, for all my Savior died. Not just for the elect, but for everyone who would open their hearts and receive that. One of the contemporary issues that this raises for me in my own mind, this idea of predestination, is to put it rather bluntly, do we or don't we all have a set time to go to leave this world, to check out of this life on a permanent basis? Do we have a set time? And maybe this is one way we have of trying to explain what often is an unexplainable tragedy, a difficult thing to accept. And I can see where some folks find some comfort in believing like this, like our number's up and that's it. But in actuality, that seems to me to be a form of predestination against which we have pushed back for these centuries. If it's our time to go, so to speak, then why bother with hospitals and physicians and medications and all that we invest as people in this country and elsewhere in health care? If we believe when our number's up, it's up, then why even bother with all those kind of things? If it's our time to go, so to speak, then why do we look both ways before we cross the street? And what about the prevalence of, of suicide among teenagers and other groups, veterans, law enforcement folks? Can we honestly say it's their time to go? And then how about the millions around the globe who are food deprived, still folks starving to death every day, every night? Can we just say, well, their number's up and not try to make a difference and not try to help and not comfort those who are going through the horrible grief of losing someone, especially through suicide and other difficulties? I don't be I can't explain all tragedy and all suffering. I've spent some time trying and I know you have too and I know from the questions that I've received across the decades most frequently that one comes up. But I have a hard time with that our number is up theory. Maybe you've given it some thought. Maybe you look at it a little bit differently and that's certainly okay and I would love to talk with you about that. But I don't believe that's the way our God works. Another implication or belief in God's love for all persons is that it is God who invites us into a living and loving relationship with God. This is God's grace, actively loving us, desiring to forgive us. And we United Methodists, along with John Wesley and others believe, as I said a moment ago, that this grace is operative in our lives and in our hearts before we're even aware of it. God pursuing us, the hound of heaven some have referred to God. Out of our heritage, we reaffirm our faith in provenient grace, God's love for us before we even acknowledge it or are aware of it. But grace also signifies God's pardoning love, God's forgiving love, our maturing in the faith, 
our growing in grace. And finally, the crown, and we'll talk about that in a few weeks, of sanctification. We grow all the days of our life and our faith, and we look for new ways, and we open our hearts and minds to new understandings. And we realize we don't have it all figured out. And we've got to be careful when we step into the role of judge and jury and executioner over other Christians. We've got to keep growing. What has God still not showed us? Not yet. God's grace, active at every stage along our spiritual journey in different ways. Ephesians chapter 1, how great is the grace of God, which he gave to us in large measure. A lifetime kind of thing. Difficult to imagine life without it. But because the gift is free, it's often overlooked and it's often awkward. We have so much pride. Most of us do. I do. Maybe some of you do too. That we feel we must earn everything. Everything. And when God says this gift of grace is absolutely free, God's paid the whole price. That's just hard for some folks. We want to do something. We want to keep some rules. We want to abide by some regulations. We want to find some way to earn what God said is a free gift. We earn it with our physical strength and our intellectual abilities. But those are gifts from God, aren't they? God's grace is free and undeserved, and that's tough, and we don't know how to deal with it. And we've all known some folks who have never learned the art of being gracious receivers. I talk often about my grandparents on my mother's side who, uh, it was so hard to give them anything because they wanted to give it back. They felt like if they received a gift, then they were obligated to you. And they would avoid that obligation at all costs. And sometimes that's how we're prone to react when God's grace invades our lives. We want to earn it. We want to think it's our achievement. And if we are to affirm our belief in God's love for all persons, we must realize it's by grace. And we can earn it. We receive grace. Grace is amazing. But it's also awkward. And we must learn to open our hearts. Grace, mysterious, marvelous grace that brings God's love to bear on our greatest needs and our deepest hurts and our darkest fears. I heard this story when I was in seminary. One of my professors told it. He knew about this young man. The young man had asked for and had been given the keys to the brand new family car. Man, the family was so proud of this new car. And it had been raining that night, and the young man hydroplaned, and he lost control of the car, and he hit a tree, and he was not seriously injured. But the car was totaled. He was shaking like a leaf on a tree in a windstorm. And when he finally got to a phone, he dialed home. And he took a deep breath, And just as he heard the familiar voice on the other end of the line in in a trembling voice, you can imagine some of you maybe have been there. He said, Dad, I've had an accident. The car is torn up. It's bad. I'm not sure it can be driven again. 
I'm so sorry. And he began to cry. He said, I really couldn't help it. It just got away from me. And his dad said, forget the blankety-blank car, son. Are you all right? And this young man said it was at this moment that he first began to understand what grace is all about. It happens on a human level and helps us to accept God's grace on a divine level. We believe in God's love for all persons. God has been graceful to us. And doesn't that obligate us in some way to give our best effort to be graceful to one another? Even when others frighten us or disappoint us or don't measure up to our expectations. And there's another implication of our belief in God's love for all persons and simply we should love one another. As Bonnie read so beautifully a while ago, that passage from 1 John, let us love one another because love comes from God. This is how God loved us. Then we should love one another. We love because God first loved us. How easy it is to forget that sometimes when folks act in ways that are unlovely and unbecoming. Jesus said, by this shall all persons know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. And he also said, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another, even as I've loved you, that you also love one another. And I thought about that this morning. I was listening to the, they used to call it the Protestant hour on the radio as I was driving here. And the preacher who was preaching this morning was talking about Amy Jill Levine. She's a Jewish scholar who uh, he's done some great work with the New Testament. And um, he was talking about this particular verse, a new commandment I give you. And she had taught him that's not a new commandment. That's all over the Old Testament. What is new about this? The new part is that you should love one another as I have loved you. That's the new part of it. That's the part that the foot washing Jesus gave to us. We are to love one another, even as he has loved us. W.E. Sankster, who was a tremendous preacher from an earlier generation, told his Sunday congregation at Westminster Hall in London about an experience that he and his family had had during World War II. Their home had been destroyed during an air raid. He and his family were forced to move into an air raid shelter with several other families in that area, homeless people they had become. The crowd of homeless, crushed, and suspicious, and angry people were forced into this shelter together, and it was a tough first night. Nothing to drink, no water, and no tea. Early the next morning, Sangster went back to his house, and he searched the ruins, and he found that precious reserve of sugar and of tea, which, by governor, government order, had been put there against the time of need. Just put this aside. You might need it. Finding the reserve, he brought it to the shelter for the use of his family. However, in one, he said, prodigal gesture, the writer said, he put the tea in a big tub. And he began to mix it in and he began to share it around. And some said, it's a silly waste of tea. It provides maybe one cup for each person in the shelter. You could have kept it for your family. It would have been good for a long time. 
but it caused the atmosphere of the group and the shelter to change. Bitterness and suspicion began to melt away. Other people brought their carefully hoarded reserves, and they began to share them with the crowd. And the spirit of that shelter became one of sharing. And the government made it known throughout the land what was going on here when people began to put other folk before themselves. They wanted to reproduce that spirit in other shelters as well. To really love one another. An implication of our belief in God's love for all persons. Not just pretty sounding religious talk. But a life transforming reality. And we might as well be honest with ourselves. Some folks are tough to love. And some, once we get to know them, are not so tough to love. But to love all persons. That's just not some kind of pious bumper sticker, I heart this or that kind of thing that you put on the back of your car or on the bulletin board. It's a choice. A choice to actively love somebody. Even when things they've said and done have disturbed us and shaken us to our very core. There's nothing easy about this stuff. But by the grace of God. And then a final implication, or one, a final one I'll mention today, I know there are many more. Our belief in God's love for all persons is the belief that in that great love lies our security. Eternal security. This life and the life to come the most powerful and the most potent force in the whole universe, the love of God, surrounds us from the word go, from the very start of our lives. Romans chapter 8. If I had to pick a favorite chapter in the Bible, Old or New Testaments, it would be Romans chapter 8. And I've used that verse or parts of that verse so many times Paul says for I'm certain that nothing can separate us from the love of God neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers on high or below or any other force anything in all creation none of that can separate us from the love of God and I've used that passage so many times at memorial services and funeral services. Separation's painful, especially when the great separator is death. We are separated from one who was so much a part of our lives, and we are concerned, are they now separated from the love of God as they are separated from us? But Paul didn't say, he didn't say, I think, or, or maybe it's like this. He said nothing. Nothing. I am certain, he said. And when Paul got certain, he was certain and he was stubborn and there was no way to shake him, I don't think. I'm certain that there is no power. There is nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's our hope. That's our security. Not our stuff, not our accounts, not all those other things. The security, the love that will never go away. And this belief can make all the difference in the world in our lives when we realize that that vague all persons, love of God for all persons, that may be a little vague to some folk, but when it comes home and it becomes our security and our hope, then it begins to clear up some. And we can love self and love one another. 
Philip Bliss was a hymn writer, and there's a lot of story. He has a great backstory about the difficult life he had growing up and how he was shunned and pushed aside because of the poverty in which he lived. But he wrote many amazing hymns. And I want to sum up today. I want to try to bring this in for a landing with just a couple of stanzas from one of his hymns. You may know this hymn. It's in some of the earlier hymnals, some of the gospel songbooks. He wrote, I am so glad that our Father in heaven tells of his love in the book he has given. Wonderful things in the Bible I see. This is the dearest that Jesus loves me. Jesus loves even me, even you. Oh, if there's only one song I can sing, when in his beauty I see the great king, this shall my song through eternity be. Oh, what a wonder that Jesus loves me. Amen.